Well, good morning and Happy New Year. It is so great to have you with us at the start of a brand new year. I love this time of year. I love this month of the year because it just seems like there is a greater degree of spiritual eagerness, spiritual hunger. Seems that way to me. That people are more open to seeking God, drawing closer to God. And um, I'm glad you're here today and excited for the month we have ahead. Also want to say thank you to those of you who've been with us over the last couple years, sticking with us through a challenging season of COVID and uh, your faithfulness in praying and attending and giving. God has sustained us wonderfully through this time and uh, blessed us abundantly, and I just thank you for your part in that. We are going to celebrate communion this morning, the Lord's Supper, so if you didn't get one of these little cups on the way in, those of you here can get one at one of the tables in the back. For those of you joining us at home um, online, you may want to have ready a piece of bread or a kind of juice or near substitute. We'll celebrate communion at the end of the message today. And we'll, we'll also take the opportunity for those of you here to pray with you and for you. If you have a need for uh, prayer as we're celebrating communion or as the service draws to a close, please come forward and let us pray for you here up front or at the back tables. Now, for those who are guests at our church today, and typically we do see a lot of people in January coming to our church for the first time, one of the best ways to say a word about who we are as a church is by looking at what we call our vision frame. You'll see the vision frame on the screens ahead of you. I think of it kind of like a window frame through which you look into the future, and in the future we have what we call our vision 2025. Vision 2025 is a much prayed over, discussed picture of what we hope prayerfully in dependence upon the Holy Spirit our church will look like in year 2025. It is a vision that's driven by spiritual growth and discipleship uh, expressed in outreach to those outside of the church. And we express that uh, briefly in our mission statement, building follower, followers of Jesus sent to reach others. The discipleship pathway at the bottom, I think of as kind of a map for spiritual growth. These four things. And frankly, all, all four of those have been disrupted a bit by COVID. I mean, our worshiping together has been disrupted a bit. Our small groups, our, our service going with the mission, but we're not going to stop. In fact, I hope in this year we'll not only recover, but go beyond uh, where we have been. Then our values on the left side of the frame, I want to focus today on the second one, prayer fueled, prayer fueled. If you go and read our Vision 2025, it's all about spiritual growth and uh, growing to the degree that we begin reaching those outside of our church locally and around the world. That's the way Jesus called his disciples to growth. He, he called them to be with him and he, he taught them, he discipled them. But then he said, now I'm sending you. Go and take the gospel to the world. Minister to the lost, the least, the poor, the hurting, the needy. Bring the good news of my salvation to them. And that's a, that's a mark of maturity in our spiritual growth. We all hope to be sent people, sent into our world. But if the foundation of this vision is prayer, 
our, our Vision 2025 is a, a lengthy document, about a page and a half. I'm just going to read the last two sentences to you. And they read like this. An increasing dependence upon the Holy Spirit through prayer characterizes the church and those who call River Oaks home. An increasing dependence on the Holy Spirit that is expressed through prayer. We express this dependence often by quoting a theme verse for the church. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Prayer expresses our dependence upon God, our recognition that only he can really build his church and only he can really build our lives individually and make us growing disciples of Jesus. So this month, this first month of the year, I'd like to start by focusing on prayer, how to pray, how our prayer lives can be further developed. And I want to look at what is probably Jesus' most foundational teaching on prayer. It's found in the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 5 through 15. Jesus prayed often. If you follow the example of Jesus through the Gospels, after a busy day and evening of ministry, he'd get up early in the morning, go off alone somewhere and pray. Uh, his disciples saw him praying often, saw him praying much. So they said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. In the midst of what is probably his best-known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives what is, I, again, I think his most foundational teaching on prayer. And I'd like to look at that today. You'll see it on the screen. I'll read beginning in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. Jesus said, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, in this teaching on prayer, begins by stressing how not to pray. How not to pray. And he first makes the point that we should not pray to impress people but to communicate with God. And again, he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, when Jesus refers to hypocrites, it seems that he's most often talking about religious hypocrites, the scribes and the Pharisees, those who were legalistic and judgmental and often looked on others because of their own perceived superiority spiritually. The Pharisees were a group within Judaism 
that held strictly to the law and had many rules and regulations of their own. They were often at odds with Jesus. Jesus referred to them as hypocrites. He said, you must not be like them, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. These religious hypocrites might arrange their schedule so that on the traditional Jewish hours of prayer at 3, at, at uh, 6, at noon, they'd be standing in a very public place, perhaps a street corner or a public place in the synagogue, so that they would be seen faithfully praying at the hours of prayer. Jesus said, don't be like that. Don't pray to be seen by others, to impress others. Have you ever noticed anybody leading in prayer, praying somewhere, who, who changes their voice when they pray. They use flowery, religious kind of language as if it's, you know, I wonder what the Lord thinks about that. I wonder if he's thinking, why don't you talk like you always talk when you talk to me? People often pray to be impressive to others. Jesus said, do not be like that. He says, when you pray, go into your room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this raises a question. Is Jesus saying, only pray alone? No, I don't think that's what he is expressing here. Jesus himself prayed in front of his disciples. That's why they said, Lord, teach us to pray, because they observed him praying. In Luke chapter 11, we read that. We also see in the New Testament the early church praying together often. In Acts chapter 1, we read there were 120 people, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the apostles in an upper room. They're praying together, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. Later in the book of Acts, we read when the, when the apostles are threatened and forbidden to preach in the name of Jesus, they come to the church. The church prays together. They lift their voices to God and take the issue to God in prayer. Jesus himself said in Matthew 18 and verse 19, if any two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about asking God the Father who will respond by answering that prayer. There's power when Christians come together and pray together. And by the way, those of you who are married, I think this is particularly true and very important in a marriage that wives and husbands pray together. Pray together. Jesus is not saying you only pray alone. He's making the point, however, that we must be willing to pray to be seen and heard by God only. His point is we don't pray to impress people, but to communicate with God. The second thing he says not to do he reminds us that God is not pleased with empty phrases. Now he's talked about religious hypocrites, probably the scribes and Pharisees, very religious people, and now he refers to a practice of the Gentiles. When Jesus refers to Gentiles, he's referring to those who are, are not Jews, those who are outside of the temple worship, unfamiliar with God's law. He says, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. This is not so much religious prayer as superstitious prayer. Words recited uh, repeatedly to try to earn something from God. 
God's not impressed with just a bunch of words recited over and over to try to get him to do something. Now, this raises a question, too. The question it raises is, what about saying the Lord's Prayer? We often say that in church. Many of us have memorized the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Is it okay to say that over and over? Certainly, I think it is. That's why we often will repeat the Lord's Prayer together in our church. Jesus is making the point, however, that it's what is in your heart that is important. Not repetition of a bunch of empty words. So the question is, uh, when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, are we praying it from our heart? Are we praying it to God? And as much as is possible, are we understanding what we're saying to God? Prayer is not a magic formula. Prayer is not say certain words and get a certain result. Not at all. Understand what you're saying to God and speak with sincerity and honesty and humility and trust. I've talked to a lot of people about prayer over the years, particularly men in in small groups over the years. And I know that lots of people struggle with prayer, struggle with what to say to God, words to use. Just speak honestly. Speak sincerely. Express your heart to God. I think of two examples of prayer that, that we find in Scripture of people who really exemplify this. The first, the first prayer comes out of a parable told by Jesus. And if you've got your Bible with you and you want to look at it, those of you here, those of you online, it's found in Luke chapter 18 and verse 13. Jesus told a parable there about two people who went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, religious person. The other a tax collector, despised often by Jewish people. The Pharisee prayed, Lord, he went on and on praying about himself. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I do this, I do this. I thank you I'm not like that ungodly tax collector over there. Here's the tax collector's prayer, very simple. In Luke 18 and verse 13, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. No flowery religious words. God be merciful to me, a sinner. You know what Jesus said? He said, this man went home justified rather than the other. In other words, God did an incredible thing. God forgave him. God declared him righteous. His prayer was more than answered. God be merciful to be a sinner. No religious words, no flowery words. Humility, honesty, trust. Humility, honesty, trust. Another example in Luke 23 and verse 42. Jesus was crucified between two criminals one on either side of his cross, the Gospels tell us. And one of those criminals, before he died, said something to Jesus. You may not think of it as a prayer, but really it was a prayer. Here's what he said in Luke 23, 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's it. That's it. And Jesus says to him, 
truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Wow. What an answer to prayer. All he said was, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Humility. Honesty. Trust. I've heard people say, people, some have taught this unwisely over the years, that God never hears the prayer of an unbeliever, of, of a sinner. Well, I think he heard these two prayers we just referred to, didn't we? Heard the prayer of the thief on the cross. Otherwise, how would anybody ever be saved? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Humility, honesty, trust. No pretense, no religious words, no attempt to manipulate God, no reciting of phrases over and over and over and over and over to get God to do something. Humility, honesty, trust. So Jesus begins how not to pray. Don't be like the religious hypocritical Jews trying to impress people with your prayer. Don't be like the superstitious Gentiles who think they got to use the right words over and over and over to get God to do something. Now, he tells us how to pray. And the model he now gives us is incredibly important. And we'll use it this month as some, something of an outline as we go through uh, teachings on developing our lives of prayer. Today we're just going to look at the very first verse in Jesus' model prayer. And it teaches us, I think, two vitally, vitally important truths about prayer. First of all, prayer that pleases God is an expression of relationship. Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 9, after having told us how not to pray, pray then like this. This is how to pray. Our Father in heaven, or if you're reading the King James Version, our Father who art in heaven. Let's pause there. You were out there that day sitting on the hill listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and you were a good Jewish person who'd grown up hearing the scrolls of what we call the Old Testament read in the temple. When you heard Jesus say, our Father, and he told you to pray like that, you probably would have been shocked. Because in the Old Testament, all the Old Testament, by, by one writer's count, there are only 14 times that God is referenced as Father and generally as the Father of the Israelite nation, not in a personal way like this. And yet, in his Sermon on the Mount, just these three simple chapters, one sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, there's 17 times he's referring to God as Father. And 70 times in the four Gospels. Not only that, but he says you can say, Our Father, the same Father to whom God the Son, the Son of God, Jesus, speaks. Now, what accounts for this? Jesus, in coming, is bringing about a radically new approach to God and understanding of how we can approach God in prayer. What is happening in Jesus' coming that opens up the door whereby you and I can say, our Father, to the great God and creator of all things. 
I think perhaps a passage that dresses it uh, as well as any other is, is found in the, the, the writing of the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. I think you'll see it on the screen. The Apostle Paul writes it this way. Oops. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, hear that. God the Father, in the appropriate time, sent Jesus, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem us, to redeem being to buy us out of our slavery to sin, to purchase our salvation. He would die on the cross and shed his blood on our behalf so that we might be forgiven redeemed and adopted and because you are sons God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying Abba Father now let me just pause for a moment and say this uh, for the women who are here all these references to sons is not leaving out women by any chance just a few verses prior to this the apostle Paul wrote these words for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In Jewish tradition, the son, particularly the firstborn son, was the inheritor of, of the great inheritance. But in Christ, male and female together, slave and free, Jew and Greek, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all share equally so that Paul can say you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir. In other words, through faith in Jesus Christ, you and I are adopted so that we can call God Abba, Father. Abba, Abba is an Aramaic word for, for father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. How's it going to come about then that we can freely say our Father without condemnation for our sin? We can approach God the Father just as Jesus did. Comes about because of the verse that Joseph read at the very beginning of the service. He read from John chapter 14. You may remember that. Verse 6 of that chapter, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We come to the Father through the Son. And when we come to the Father through the Son, we can call him our Father. We're heirs with God. Prayer that pleases God recognizes this relationship, that we stand in a relationship with God the Father through Jesus, God the Son, and we can come as adopted children as heirs without condemnation because we have a great savior and high priest Jesus who opened the way for us prayer that pleases God then begins with relationship we can call God father because of our faith in Jesus now there's more to the phrase our father who art in heaven Jesus adds these words, hallowed be your name. 
we should always balance the beauty of this intimate, close relationship that we're freely given whereby we can call God Father with an understanding of the great reverence we should always have for God. We gain the relationship with God the Father. We never lose the reverence for his greatness, for his awesomeness, for his perfect holiness. So prayer that pleases God is also an expression of reverence, as we read in Matthew 6 and verse 9. Hallowed be your name. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We've been given the beautiful closeness of a relationship, but we also pray with reverence, holy is your name. To hallow, the word hallow we don't use often, means to treat or regard as holy. And we're to hallow God's name because God's name his name represents all that he is. We sang a song a little bit earlier, your, your names say it all. And the names of God, various names given in scripture are representative of the various qualities of God. But when we're told not to take his name in vain, when we're told to hallow his name, we're told that because his name represents who he is. Holy is your name. To be regarded as holy, to be treated with the highest reverence and honor. So here's my point. Jesus brings us into a beautiful relationship, intimate relationship of closeness and love and acceptance with our Heavenly Father. That's wonderful. We never lose the great reverence we must have for God, though, so that Jesus says, when you're praying, remember, our Father, hallowed be your name. Remember to whom we pray. Remember his awesomeness, his greatness, his beauty. A passage that reminds us of that, I think, is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, where the Apostle Paul is telling us where we were without Jesus, where we would be without him, and what God has done. We read this, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's a remarkable verse when you think about it. Before receiving Jesus, our spiritual condition was this, dead, <laughs> dead. We, we couldn't contribute anything to our salvation. It was the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God, by grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Knowing truths like this, knowing the gospel, allows us to always remember the greatness of what God has done for us, where we would be without him. We never lose our regard for the great and awesome holiness of God. As a Christian, the closer you grow to God, you never lose the reverence for who he is. And it springs from great gratitude that though he is infinite and perfect in his holiness, he has still, because of Jesus, adopted you and chosen you. And when we can balance the relationship with the reverence, we live with the, with the greatest possible gratitude for our Lord and our God. Now, our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the God we address in prayer. Jesus has made the relationship. We've come to him with great reverence. And Jesus calls us to pray this way. Now, recognizing this, recognizing what Jesus has done for us, enables us to actually enjoy fellowship with God. You ever think about the fact that God created you to enjoy fellowship with himself? What do you think God was doing before creation? Jesus was with the Father before creation. New Testament's very clear about that, as was the Holy Spirit. We believe, and the Bible teaches throughout the doctrine of the Trinity. There's one God, only one God, but he exists eternally as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always enjoyed perfect communion, perfect love, perfect fellowship. God chose to create as an expression an overflow of this great love so that we might be sharers of the love that the Father has through the Spirit for the Son. Now that may seem remarkable to some. I'd like to look at just a, a glimpse of Jesus' prayer in John 17. You'll see it on the screen. Just a few verses out of this great prayer. Longest prayer of Jesus in the Bible is found in, in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying and he says these words, I do not ask for these only. That is, I'm not just praying for the apostles, the disciples, um, Peter, James, John, the others, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. There are two things I'd like to note in these four verses. Number one, Jesus includes us in this prayer. Notice he says, I'm not only praying for the disciples, but for all those who will believe in me through their word, through their gospel, down through the ages, believers who have embraced the teaching, the message, the gospel, the apostles began to preach. He's praying for us too. And notice the very last phrase, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you hear those words? Jesus is saying and praying that even the world would know that God loves his believers as he loves Jesus. If you will read John chapter 17, I think there's six times that you'll find in this chapter that Jesus refers to believers as the Father's gift to the Son. You ever, ever thought of yourself that way? If you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, have you ever thought of yourself as a gift from the Father to the Son? 
we often think of Jesus as God's gift to us, and we should. We rarely think of ourselves as, as God's gift to Jesus. Six times in this prayer, he refers to those whom you've given me, those whom you have given me. He gives us the privilege of experiencing by the Holy Spirit, whereby the love of God is poured out into us, this, this great love. And friends, this, and here's the reason I share this, this is the greatest motivation for life of prayer. You can try to say, I'm going to pray more this year, I'm going to pray 30 minutes a day, I'm going to pray an hour today, and your resolutions and your discipline, if you're a disciplined person, may get you pretty far. But the greatest motivation for a life of prayer is to enjoy fellowship with God, to enjoy his presence. I've sometimes wondered, why did Jesus pray so much? We read Gospel of Mark chapter 1. He, he goes out early in the morning to solitary places and pray, to pray. It seems that he had a custom of going to the Garden of Gethsemane. His disciples saw him praying and said, Lord, teach us to pray. He prayed much. In Luke 6, it says he went out and spent the whole night in prayer to God, the night before he chose his 12 disciples. And I've wondered, why did he need to do that? Wouldn't he already know the Son of God, who the 12 were going to be? Why would he need to spend the night in prayer? I don't think it's so much he needed to. He wanted to. Jesus had learned to love prayer because prayer is communion with God. It's fellowship with God. I'm just, I think, beginning to learn this. And I don't mean to make it sound like I always enjoy prayer. I have certain blocks of time during the week when I pray and pray for a church. And sometimes it feels like a real drudgery duty. I find my mind wandering. But the more I pray, and it does take discipline to begin prayer, the more I've come to realize there is enjoyment, there is a greater awareness of the presence of God, there is the beginning of the experience of fellowship with God and communion with God that will call us back to prayer. So that I really do believe it's true. The greatest sustaining motivation for a life of prayer is to enjoy fellowship with God. Let me just say this. Um, well, let me just pray first. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we'll only become people of prayer if the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us to make us people of prayer. We can't work up the desire to pray. You teach us in your word and we're so grateful for that. But Lord, our desire is that you by your Holy Spirit would be poured upon us as individuals and as a church. And I pray for each one here, for those watching online, an endowment of power to call us to prayer and to enable us to experience your presence and enjoy your enabling power through prayer. Teach us, Lord. 
teach us to pray and empower us to pray, we ask in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. The reason that it's possible for us to call God our Father is that the Son of God left heaven. And as C.S. Lewis said, it would have been like a diver descending into the darkest, murkiest, most polluted of all waters to retrieve a pearl of great price for the Son of God to leave the glory of heaven to come into this sin-filled world. But he did. And he lived among us, and he gave his life. He allowed himself to be arrested, beaten, spit upon, scourged, and crucified. And there on the cross, he bore our sins. There on the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He bore our sin. He paid our debt. He became our substitute. And we remember that today by celebrating what we call the Lord's Supper. On the screen, you will read Paul's words about this. Paul the Apostle from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing today. We choose to take the bread and the cup, making a visible proclamation that by faith, we have received the benefits of the Lord's death on that cross. Paul then gives this warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In just a moment, we'll take the, the bread and then the juice, those who would like to. Um, but I'd like to first take a moment of prayer and of silence to, to do what that passage says, examine ourselves. And I'd say that all are welcome to take communion here. You don't have to be a member of our church. But I do think it's important that you have personally embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. And if you've not done that before, now would be the perfect time to do that. To say, God, by faith, I receive what Jesus did on the cross for me. I repent of my sin. I turn to you. I embrace you as Savior and Lord. Let's pray together now. Father, I pray for any here, any watching online, who has not yet truly given his or her life to you as Savior and Lord, that you would enable that person to recognize their need for forgiveness, to repent, to turn and like the tax collector to say God be merciful to me a sinner like the thief on the cross to say Lord remember me receive me Lord prepare us now to receive this holy thing we call the Lord's Supper
take the bread first, and if you have one of these packaged cups here, I'll give you a moment to tear off the bottom. A little wafer will drop out. I'll give you just a moment. We can take these together. The body of Christ given for you. give you a moment to remove the top of the cup. The blood of Christ shed for you. I'd like to pray for us one more time. Father, I pray for your people. Pray for those in our church <clears throat> who serve in health care. Many of them, Lord, have been weary. Would you strengthen them with might by your spirit and encourage them today? Pray for those in our church involved in education, teachers, administrators. Strengthen them, encourage them. Lord, I pray for those who serve in public safety, others on the front lines. Watch over them. Bless them, keep them, encourage them. Lord, bring renewal to your people today. And throughout this month, would you revitalize us as people who will pray, who will seek you, who will take your light into a dark world. Be magnified among us, Lord, we pray. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen.